if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you or underneath you or um, somewhere around you. Um, and if not, there's also an app on your phone you can download called the Bible app. And uh, pretty clever name for it. And that will do that as well. So Romans chapter 6 is where we will be. We're in this series called Good News for All People. And the premise of this series is simply that God has done something that is good for you. And it's for you because you're in everybody. You're in anybody. You're in all people. So God has done something for you. What has he done? He has sent his son Jesus to die in your place on the cross and be raised from the dead so that your sins can be forgiven. That's what he has done for you. So the bad news... We talked about that the first week, is that we are all unrighteous people. That means we've all done things that we shouldn't do. And because of that, God is a good authority in the world, and good authority steps in when things are wrong. And so that's what God intends to do. He intends to condemn those who are sinners. That's bad news. But the good news is that God has also sent his son Jesus to be condemned in our place. So what I want to talk about this morning is just this simple question. How can that message, how can the the good news change us? How can it make me a better man? How can it make me a better husband? How can it make you a better man or a better husband? How can it make you a better employer? How can it make you a better employee? How can it make you a better person? And the reason that we have to ask that is because it can seem like on the surface, okay, talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, that seems like such a like, okay, maybe that would be useful if you're ever feeling guilty. But beyond that, you need like some more principles to help you become a good person. If you're going to be kinder, if you're going to be nicer, if you're going to, you know, be, have more integrity, then you need something besides the message of Jesus, It would maybe seem like that were true. Or it may also seem like if all we ever did was focus on the good news about what Jesus has done for us, then wouldn't that actually just make us think we should sin more? Because if Jesus will forgive us for all the sins that we've done, then why wouldn't you just uh, have a good time regardless of what's the right or wrong thing to do? Why would you worry about doing the right thing if God's going to forgive you anyway because of the good news? So how does the good news make us good people. How can the good news change us? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? So Paul, who used to not be a Christian, used to hate Christians, but then he discovered this news about Jesus and he became a Christian. He says, what shall we say then? After talking about all of this good news, what should we say? What should we do now? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if if whenever we sin, God's grace is greater than our sin, then wouldn't it be a way of showing how great his grace is if we just all sinned a lot? Like, let's, let's show the world how good God is. Let's make a bigger mess so that, oh, look at what God did. Look at what God forgave us for. 
And he says, verse 2, by no means, or in other words, absolutely not. And then he asks this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? What in the world is he talking about? Now he's going to begin to answer this question of why the good news can make us good people. How can the good news change us? That's what he's going to say. That's what he's going to explain. And he basically is going to say two things. First, the good news frees us from sin. The good news frees us from sin. And second, the good news unites us with Jesus. It unites us with Jesus. So what does the good news do? How does it make us good? First, it frees us from sin. Second, it unites us with Jesus. Bless you, by the way. So let's talk about the first thing. It frees us from sin. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Then look at verse 6 and 7. He says that we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's Jesus. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Then look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he says that we, the good news, through believing the good news, we have been set free from sin. Or another way of thinking about that is we have died to it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be dead to someone? One time there was a girl that I liked and she didn't like me back. And um, a good friend of mine said, you know what? She's dead to me. She's dead to me. What is he saying? He's saying that that relationship now, it's over. That relationship is done with. That what used to be true is no longer true. That's what he's saying. So the good news frees us from sin because we are dead to it. Our relationship with it has changed. How? Two ways. First, we used to be enslaved to sin because of sin's condemnation of us. Condemnation of us. Do you know what condemnation is? Condemnation is the feeling that you have of guilt. That's what condemnation is. It's the feeling you have of guilt. Have you ever felt condemned before? Have you ever done something and you felt like you were in the wrong, like you were being judged for what you had done? That's what condemnation is. So the guilt and the shame that we feel that's connected to our sin, we are freed from that with the good news. For me, I can, I can walk around in guilt for days over the smallest thing. Do you ever have that? You have a conversation with someone 
and you said something that you wish you could take back and you feel like you were misunderstood. And then for days, you feel this, this guilt for what you did. That's our relationship to sin. Sin condemns us. It makes us feel bad for the things that we've done. This is also how Satan works. Now, Christians believe a lot of weird stuff, and one of the things that we believe is that there's a spiritual, invisible enemy in the world who wants to destroy our lives. And his name is Satan, which means the accuser. Now, do you know what the accuser does? Do you know what Satan's power is? Do you know what Satan's strategy is? It's to bait you to the edge. It's to say, get as close as you can to sin. It's going to be so good for you. It's going to make you feel so great. It's going to make your life so much better. Satan likes to bait us to the edge and then condemn us when we jump. So he makes it seem like it's going to be so great over here with sin, but then the moment that we give in, he says, you're such a failure. You are such a loser. You are the worst. You're the worst husband. You're the worst man. You're the worst father. You're the worst wife. You're the worst mom. I can't believe you would do that. So he's baiting us to the edge and then condemning us when we jump. That's what our relationship to sin was. It has condemnation over us. It makes us feel guilty. But here's the deal. We weren't just condemned as a feeling. We were condemned as a fact. The condemnation that we had because of our relationship with sin wasn't just a feeling. It was reality. And the reason is because God is a just God. God has ways that he wants the world to work. He has ways that he wants you to live. He has ways that he wants me to live. And he has ways that he wants the world to operate. And he, unlike the accuser, is the one who actually has a good vision for the world. And so all of us have sinned, which means we have condemnation. But that's not just a feeling, it's truth. We all deserve God's judgment, his wrath, his good anger. We all deserve that. So it's not just a feeling, it's a fact. The good news, the message of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, by dying in our place and being raised from the dead, that frees us from condemnation. That means that it can deal with our feelings of condemnation because it has dealt with the fact of our condemnation. See, the good news of Jesus is not like therapy where you just like train yourself to think more positively about yourself. You know, you're a failure, you've done some bad things, but just, just feel better. Just feel better. Love yourself because God loves you. It's not... <clears throat> The, the, the good news of Jesus is not like therapy where it's like you just trick yourself into being more positive about yourself. Instead, it's therapy that can get to the root of your feelings of inadequacy and failure and condemnation because it has, been, it has become fact. Jesus died on the cross being condemned in your place. That means that if you belong to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. 
Now, that means that when God looks at you, he's not trying to just, oh, I can't believe he screwed up again. I can't believe she screwed up again. That's not God's attitude towards you because he has condemned Jesus in your place. So God's attitude towards you is an attitude of acceptance. It's an attitude of love. It's an attitude of grace. Why? Because he has condemned Jesus in your place. And that reality, that fact, can transform the way that you feel as well. Ben Shapiro says, facts don't care about your feelings, right? This is an example. This is a way that what God has done for you in Christ can begin to inform your feelings. So, the good news frees us from sin. How does it do that? It gets rid of the power of sin's condemnation over us. It also, here's the second thing that, second way that it frees us from sin, is it releases us from sin's dominion over us, or sin's authority over us, or sin's power over us. In our old relationship with sin, sin used to be the boss. It used to be the master. And here's what I mean. That we just, our natural tendency was just to do things the way that sin would lead us to do them. That was our natural tendency. Um, Everything in our life was distorted by sin and would lead us away from God. That's not to say that everything in our life was bad. It's just that we would take anything that was good and somehow distort it with sin and it would lead us away from God. Let me give you a few examples. Um, The the desire that you might have for um, career advancement or achievement of some kind, wanting to be successful, that's a good desire. That can be something that, that is works tremendously for your life to make your life better and the lives of others better, for you to have a drive to be successful. But what sin would do as your master is trick you into thinking that if you could be successful, then your life would be enough. That if you could just be successful, if you could just make this, ever get this job or ever make this much money or ever live in this nice of a house or ever accomplish whatever it was for you, If you could ever just accomplish that, then in your soul you would feel satisfied and you would have enough. And so in that way, sin is a master that is leading you to dissatisfaction, to frustration, to emptiness. That's what sin would do as our master. It would take anything good and distort it with a lie that would then leave us empty. That's what sin would do. It would do this with our emotions as well. We would have this good anger that we would feel whenever we, something was wrong, but then that anger would go out of control. We would be a, have a good and healthy um, caution about something, and then sin would, would take that caution and make it fear that would paralyze us and leave us in all kinds of anxiety. We would have a good feeling of sadness over something that had happened and sin would get a hold of that emotion and make us where we can't live 
we lose our reason for living. Sin takes things, it distorts them as our master, and it leads us towards emptiness and dissatisfaction and frustration. That's what sin does. But sin's dominion over us, sin's authority over us, has been removed because of the good news of Jesus. One of my favorite uh, movies around the holidays is Home Alone. Um, and in Home Alone, throughout the movie, you remember the movie, the little kid stays home with his parents. His parents are in uh, Europe, and he's at home by himself, right? And in the movie, um, they keep watching this scene. He keeps watching this scene. Um, and in the scene, this, these two Italian mobsters are interacting with each other. And the guy comes in, and he's like, AC said you got some dough for me. <laughs> and he's like, is that a fact? He's like, AC said 10%. And then he says, well, too bad AC ain't in charge no more. You remember that? Too bad AC ain't in charge no more. I'm not great at the Italian accent. Um, and what I love about that scene is it totally captures this. See, the guy's walking in and he's like, hey, I think that I think that you owe me some stuff. And he's like, no, because there's a new boss in town. The old relationship is over, which means that the arrangements you had before, they're over. AC ain't in charge no more. And listen, that's the, what has happened with the good news of Jesus. Sin is not in charge no more. So you don't have to obey sin any longer. You don't have to give in to temptation anymore. Instead, you can be freed from sin, which means you can pursue success without it going to your head. It's possible for you to pursue a relationship without making that relationship the thing that's going to make your heart fulfilled. You can pursue your emotions without those emotions having to consume you. AC is not in charge anymore. Sin is not in charge anymore. We have been freed from sin. So why would you continue to live in sin is Paul's question. Don't you know that you who died to sin, why would you keep living in it? And I think there are some reasons that you might. First, you might not realize what's true. You might not know that when you place your faith in Jesus, that something happens where sin loses its hold, its grip on you. You might just not know that that's true. When I first, uh, when I went to college in Chicago, um, in my high school, um, it was really strict about like, if you were going to leave campus, you had to check out in the office, all right? And I got to college, and it was the first day of orientation, and I needed to run to the store and buy some stuff. And I remember walking out and being like, am I allowed to do this? Do I need to let somebody know that I'm going to the store? Like, uh, who's keeping track of me? And there was this freedom that I, I knew that I had, but I, I wasn't able to live in it. It's like, I, I know that I don't have to check out, but it just feels weird. Like, I've gotten so comfortable having to check out that, and for some of us, that's how we live with sin. 
You've got a good relationship with sin. You like to yell when you get angry. You've done that for a long time. You like to start to, to, start to get paranoid whenever your wife starts talking about money she's about to spend. Like that's how you've done it for a long time. But the good news frees you from the grip of sin. You don't have to respond that way anymore because you are freed from it. You like finding a way to watch porn. You like that. You've gotten accustomed to that relationship. But you are freed from that. You don't have to do that anymore. And you are freed from the condemnation that you have for doing any of those things. Why? Because Jesus was condemned in your place. And that fact can inform your feeling. You don't have to do that anymore. Another reason we might not leave sin in the dust is because we're only looking for the good that sin gives us. Now, psychologists talk about um, reasons that people stay in abusive relationships. And it's, it's puzzling because it's like, okay, this person literally abuses you and yet you keep coming back to them. Why do you do that? Psychologists have all kinds of reasons for studying that. One of the things that they suggest is because we train ourselves to only see the good. And we can do that with sin. Where, okay, I know that, I know that ultimately sin's probably not good for me, but it actually has some benefits. Look, whenever I yell, people get the point. People straighten up. Whenever I lose my cool, it, it works out better. We can have all kinds of ways of justifying for, in our minds what sin does for us that's good. And so we only think about the good. Another thing that people in abusive relationships do is they start to get afraid of life without this person. They've gotten so used to doing things one way with this person, even though that's a miserable existence, that they're afraid of what it would be like without them. And sometimes our relationship with sin is like being in an abusive relationship. It's, it's terrible for us. It causes all kinds of pain, and yet we stick around. But AC is not in charge. No more. And the good news frees us from that relationship with sin. So, how does that happen? How are we freed from sin's condemnation and sin's power in our lives? And that's the second point. We are freed because the good news unites us with Jesus. The good news unites us with Jesus. Now, this is crazy. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
What is he saying? Do you know what union with Jesus is? Do you know what union with Christ is? That's not something we talk about a ton. Union with Christ is simply this right here. That when you trust in Jesus, you become one with him. So that what's true about him is now true about you. What's true about him is true about you. His past is your past and his future is your future. That's what it means to be united with Jesus. Why can he say that we've died with him? We didn't die. He died in our place. That's what we just talked about. He was condemned so that we could go free. So how did we die with him? Because whenever we trust in him, we become united with him so that what's true about him is true about us. What God thinks of him is what God thinks of us. And what God thinks of us is what God thinks of him. We are united. Theologians talk about this in a couple ways. First, they talk about how we live vicariously through Jesus by faith. Here's what this means. You know what it means to live vicariously through someone. If you were going to get ice cream and your family couldn't go, your wife's like, well, eat the mint chocolate chip for me, right? Now, you know that she can't do that or that he can't do that, right? Like you, you enjoying something doesn't do anything for that person. And yet we, we even talk about that in our normal lives. Live vicariously through me. I'm going to live vicariously through you. You're going to do something that I can't experience and I'm going to treat it as if I'm experiencing what you're experiencing. Do you get that? That's what it means to live vicariously. That's what happens with Jesus. Jesus goes and overcomes temptation in the wilderness. You and I couldn't do that. But we live now vicariously through him, so it's as if we did it with him. When Jesus walked on the water, it's as if you and I were walking on the water with him. When Jesus healed the sick, it's as if you and I were healing the sick with him. When Jesus raised the dead, it's as if you and I were raising the dead with him. When Jesus went to the cross and died, it's as if you and I were dying with him. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised with him. We live vicariously through him. What's true about him becomes true about us. His experience is now our experience. His past is our past and his future is our future. Now, sometimes when I've talked about that with people, they'll say something like, well, but wait a minute. I mean, what's true about Jesus is, is he reigns over all things. He's in charge of everything. And we're not in charge of everything. It would be wrong for us to try to take his glory away from him. He should be worshipped and praised. We should not be worshipped and praised. And that's 100% true. But here's the glorious thing about union with Jesus. Is do you know what Jesus does with his glory and his authority reigning over all things? Is he says, let me share it with you. Revelation chapter 3 says, for the one who conquers, that is the one who endures to the end, believes in Jesus and sticks with him through the end. For the one who conquers, I will give you the right to sit on my throne. So we live vicariously through him. His experience is our experience because of the good news. He was condemned in our place. He was raised from the dead. It's as if we now have been condemned for our sin. 
and we have been raised from the dead. So we live vicariously through him. And here's the second thing it means to be united with Jesus. It means that we get the results that he got. We reap the benefits that he earned. That's what it means to be united with Jesus. It's kind of like this. Um, Imagine a situation where there's um, a woman who worked really hard. She got a great job. She built a great career. And over the course of all these years, she accumulated a ton of wealth. And then she falls in love. And she gets married. And when she gets married, legally, everything that's hers becomes her husband's. Now, her husband didn't work for it in the same way that she did. He did not build a career. He did not, you know, put in all the hours to accumulate all of this wealth. But now, because they are united together, everything that's hers is his legally. In the eyes of the court, it's the same. That is what has happened with Jesus. That because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has accomplished, we are now united with him by faith. So that what's true about him is true about us. So we reap the benefits that he got. Everything that he earned, we get because we are legally connected. We're united with Jesus by faith. And Paul says that there is a picture of this union with Jesus. And it's our baptism. In baptism, when we go under the water, we are, we are showing a picture of the fact that we are now connected with Jesus in his death. We are identifying with him in his death. And when we come out of the water, we are demonstrating that we belong to his resurrection as well, that his new life is our new life. And so we are baptized, we are buried with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's why this is such good news for you. If his past is your past, then that makes your not having condemnation possible. Do you get that? When you think about your past, you think about all of these regrets. You think about all of these things that you wish you would have done differently if you could do them over. When you think about your past, you have all of these things that that weigh you down. But if you are united with Jesus and his past is your past, then what does that mean about you? And if your future is his future, then that means that regardless of what's going to happen tomorrow morning at work, regardless of the fact that you've got to try to meet payroll, regardless of the fact that your kid has just been like up all night and like there's no sleep and I don't know how that's going to affect all kinds of things in the future, regardless of all of the different what-ifs and fears that you might have about the future, if your future is Jesus' future, then what does that mean about you? Do you know what Jesus' future is? Returning to the earth to establish a new creation and reigning over that creation. And that's your future if you belong to Jesus. 
So regardless of what happens tomorrow or next week or the week after that, your future is secure. And that should give you a sense of freedom. Not that, okay, so I don't care about any of my responsibilities anymore. Not like that. But it should free you from thinking that you're responsible for the outcome of the world. The one who is responsible for the outcome of the world is Jesus. And he's saying, hey, I've put it all on my shoulders and you can have my future. That's what Jesus says to him. So what should we do in response to this? Look at chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that's the different parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So what should you do? Obey God, not sin. Obey God. Don't obey your sin. What might that look like for you? Well, he says to present your members as instruments to God. What would it look like this week for you to present your mouth to God? What if you this week remembered that you were bought with a price? that Jesus paid a price for you and that your mouth belongs to him. What would it look like this week if you had your eyes presented to God as an instrument for righteousness? How would your eyes be different if you presented them to God? Would you struggle with greed, with having what's not yours? Would you struggle with lust if you presented your eyes to God? What about your ears? What if you presented your ears this week to God? What kinds of things would you listen for? Would your ears perk up when you hear about somebody speaking badly about someone else? If your ears were inclined to God? What about your brain? If you were using your brain for God this week, what would that be like? What about your feet? The places that you go. If your feet were dedicated to God this week, where would you go? If your hands were presented to God this week, what kind of work would you do? If your stomach was presented to God this week, what kind of appetite would you have? Now, I could be talking physically, but I'm mainly talking Uh, figuratively. But what kind of appetite would you have? 
What things would you seek after to fill you up if your stomach was presented to God this week? Listen. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because Jesus has been raised from the dead, sin is not the boss of you anymore. And you are united with Jesus. Believe that this morning. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this truth. God, I ask that it would move from our heads into our hearts. God, for anybody who's here this morning who's just overwhelmed with the weight of their sin, God, would you help them look to your son, Jesus, and see that they are not condemned. That if they come and trust that Jesus can forgive, that Jesus can fill them up, if they would come believe that, God, they are, they are free from condemnation. Would you help them do that? God, for those who maybe are hurting this morning because of loved ones who are sick or loved ones who are dealing with all kinds of difficulty, God, would you help them look to your son? Would you help them see that their future is caught up in his future? And how could he who did not spare his own son not also give us all things? God, help us believe that. God, as we come to your table now, would you convict us of anything that needs to be removed from our heart? Would you make us a church that loves your grace and loves to share it with others? It's in his name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.